0: Invite you to, to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17 this morning. Genesis 17. Uh, you'll find that on page 11 if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible. And uh, as we have been doing for a little while, we're just going to do the whole chapter today. And uh, it's, to be honest, it's quite a bit of content here. I'm excited to explore it with you. I think you're going to be helped, and I know I remind you of this almost every week, if you have a copy of God's Word open, you have that in your lap there. Uh, and, and we're going to continually refer back to this passage. It's going to help you to stay engaged and consider the truths in which we're considering. So let me invite you to find your way to Genesis chapter 17. I'll also forewarn you, we're going we're to um, do a little bit of theology today, a little, a little deep thinking, if that's okay. So hopefully you've had your caffeine and you're ready to go. I, to be honest, I really think that of um, all the time throughout the week, the time in which you probably should think most deeply is uh, the Sunday morning sermon. I think that's okay to challenge us, up, challenge us to think, and so hopefully I'll be clear and we'll follow along, and uh, we'll do a little thinking, we'll do a little celebrating, we'll do a little loving the Lord through His Word. It's going to be a great time, isn't it? So, all right, I'm excited. I don't, you may not be, but listen, I, pro- I have much, enough excitement for us all today, so you just kind of borrow from me. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you An everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I, will bless, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful, multiply him greatly. He shall be a father of twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you, At this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those who were born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in his house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. And as I've already said, I, I think there's so much here to, we can mind, spend so much time considering it all. And so we we need your help today, we need your help to understand it, I need your help to explain it, we need your help to obey it, and so we ask you, through your Spirit, you would come and work, you would work through my words, you would work in our hearts and our souls and our wills, that we might know you more truly, that we might love you more earnestly, that we might obey you more fully, and that you might receive glory in all of us. So glorify Yourself in teaching us Your Word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the 19th century that a man named Theodore Kohler, who was a very famous pastor in Brooklyn, was visiting uh, perhaps the world's most famous pastor, Charles Spurgeon in London. And after a, a hard day of work and a great deal of serious conversation, these two mighty men of God Uh, went out into the country together for a holiday. And they roamed the the fields out there in the countryside in high spirits. The biographer says, like boys let loose from school, chatting, laughing, free from care. And Dr. Kohler had uh, just told a story to Spurgeon which made him just laugh uproariously. If you know anything about Spurgeon, he loved to laugh, and sometimes he would be preaching his sermon, and he would just start laughing, and he is uncontrollable. You didn't know if we're done, should I go home? Is he going to preach some more? Because he would just laugh and laugh and take minutes to gain control of himself. And so there they are out in this field, and Dr. Kohler told this story, and Luther has that great baritone belly laugh, and then he suddenly turned to Dr. Kohler and said, Theodore, let's kneel down. And thank God for laughter. As the biographer writes there, on the green carpet of grass under the trees, two of the world's greatest men knelt and thanked the dear Lord for the bright and joyous gift of laughter. Well, Abraham, here in Genesis 17, is going to hear news so great that he too will fall on his face in laughter. He's going to hear that of a relationship that he'll have with God. He's going to hear that he will be the father of kings. He's going to hear a promise to a ninety-nine-year-old man that next year you will have a son. And he believes God. And, and and the old boy, he roars with laughter. In fact, it's not the only laughter we'll see in the coming weeks. The so next Next time in chapter 18, we'll find Sarah laughing at some of this very same news. And yet her laughter, sadly, is not the laughter of faith and joy, but the laughter of disbelief and bitterness. But God will get the last laugh, if you will. He will keep his word. And despite Sarah's disbelief, he will give her a son, bringing Sarah, I think it's in chapter 21, to laughter again, along with many others. In fact, Sarah would say, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And so she names the son of promise, as instructed by God, laughter, laughter, or in Hebrew, Isaac. And, and here we see in this passage, in fact, it's a, it's a, a wonderful passage if we understand it. it. It's actually the birth, many commentators say, this is the birth of the people of God in the Old Covenant. Right? If Pentecost is the birth of the people of God in the New Covenant, then Genesis 17, when he's given the sign of the covenant, is the birth of the, of the church under the Old Covenant. And it's here that, that most commentators believe Abraham, in Genesis 17, becomes a Jew. This is the start of the Jewish people. We know, know, of course, that Abraham is a Babylonian, and he's been called out of the land of, of Ur, or the land of Babylon, there to follow God, and here he receives circumcision, and he takes this sign upon himself, and so we begin with the Jewish people. It all happens, as you know, when God appears to them. You note that in verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me, and be blameless. So it, he's 99 at this time. 24 years now has passed uh, s- since we started our study of Abraham. And okay? not 24 years for us, though it may feel like 24 years. But for, for Abraham, he was called when he's 75. He's now 99 years old. And God comes and speaks to him. I wonder, is there anyone here, by, by a show of hands, anyone here 99 or older? ninety nine or older no? right? not, not do you feel ninety nine right are you ninety nine anyone anyone ninety or older here i don't see anyone this is interesting to me now here's a very old man he's ninety nine and God is coming to him, and God is working with him God is Still teaching him. And of course, we see the lesson in which, which God continually teaches is that you, we saw this last week, you need to trust me while you wait. I'm going to do what I promise to do. In fact, he failed him pretty majorly in chapter 16, as we saw. In fact, look at the last verse in chapter 16. There, verse 16. Abraham, Abram, excuse me, was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So he's 86. He had Ishmael. Now we get one verse later. He's 99. It's been 13 years of silence, as far as we understand. No additional word. Just God saying, trust my promises. And here God now appears to him. 13 years later, and he introduces himself as El Shaddai, El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is a name in which the patriarchs um, would hold on to dearly. In fact, when we get to Exodus and God introduces uh, himself to Moses, and Moses says, who shall I tell is sending me, and God gives us his name. But before he does that, he says, I appeared, he said this to Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, as God Almighty, but my name is Yahweh, or in the Greek, Jehovah. I did not make it known to them. So he comes to to Abraham, and he says, I'm El Shaddai, I'm God Almighty, that is, I'm able to do everything that I have promised you, right? And what has he promised? Well, it's the covenant. Right? And here he comes to renew that covenant. You see that verse 2. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So God has come. He says, we're going to make a covenant. And you'd be right to say, wait a second. I thought he already made a covenant with Abraham. So just turn quickly over to chapter 15. You don't need to turn the page, I don't think. Look in verse 18, I think it is. Um, on, it says, Genesis fifteen eighteen. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So remember that? That was him passing through the slaughtered animals, and Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God entered into a covenant, and so now we've come to chapter 17, and he says, okay, we're going we're to enter into a covenant later. We'll, say, we'll see. He says, we're going to renew the covenant. So the question is, why does he come a second time uh, if the covenant's the same? Well, it has been 13 years, right? and <laughs> we are forgetful people. We forget in like 13 minutes, okay? And... And and so perhaps he's coming just to kind of nurture Abraham's faith. He comes to strengthen him. It might be because of Abraham's great failure that we saw in chapter sixteen. Remember, he sought to fulfill the promises of God, that promised son through sin, through self effort. In you know, when Abraham took the girlfriend Hagar and and had a child um, uh, uh, out of sin, out of adultery. And so God may be coming to renew that covenant, just like he did with, in the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, they worship the golden calf, and God comes a second time to them, and he renews that covenant. In other words, God is saying, even though you've sinned, my promises still stand, as we now have said for three consecutive weeks, I think, when we are faithless. He is faithful, right? And so he's teaching us this. He comes to renew the covenant. And you'll notice that, that the, the covenant has the same core promises, And so the first aspect of the covenant, point number one this morning, are the covenantal promises, very similar to what we've already seen. In fact, in the first eight verses, God says, I will seven times. I will make my covenant, I will multiply you, I will make you fruitful, I will make nations of you, I will establish my covenant, I will give you this land, and I will be your God. Seven glorious I wills, seven promises that we can really group into three main promises. We might call it, he is promising Abram a lineage, land, and the Lord. Lineage, land, and the Lord. In other words, what he's promising Abram is the kingdom of God. We're gonna, this is going to be the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus shows up and he says, immediately begins to preach. And he says, I've come to bring the kingdom of God. It's, that's not a new idea for Jesus. It's not like, okay, we're just throwing everything out from the old covenant and we're just starting brand new. No, what God, through, through Abram, wanted to bring the kingdom of God, we might understand the kingdom of God, as many writers have identified it, as God's people uh, in God's place under God's rule. God's people and God's place under God's rule. That's very similar to what God is promising Abraham here. He's promising him a lineage, that's the people, a land, that's God's place, and a rule, the, uh, the Lord. He's promising a relationship with God. And so I bring this up is I want you to understand what we're studying here in Genesis 17. This covenant with Abraham isn't tossed aside. So when we, when we read in the New Testament about the new covenant has replaced the old covenant, The Old Covenant is not the Abrahamic Covenant. That's a reference to Sinai. So God God never replaced the Abrahamic Covenant. He fulfilled it. So Jesus comes, and all of the Abrahamic Covenant pointed to what Jesus would do. And so this is why Paul would write in Romans 15, Christ became a servant in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Or as Paul would write elsewhere, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. So God made these promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and so forth, and they're answered in Jesus. Jesus comes to actually bring them about. And so this is incredibly relevant to us because the new covenant is just really the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And so what are these promises? First of all, lineage. A lineage. You see this in verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So God promises here to multiply him. You see that language? He promises that he will be fruitful. It reminds me, by the way, of God's promise to Adam, or or command to Adam Be fruitful, multiply, and so it's very important for us to understand when God takes Abraham, we're starting over. He's very much a new Adam. Okay, I want you to do exact thing, exact same thing I told Adam. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. We're still with the same plan. We're going to spread my image all over this world. But this time, instead of being a command, God says, "I'm going to do this." Right? I'm taking over. I, 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 I'm in control. I'm going to do it. And this is God's way of blessing the world that He says, okay, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to make you fruitful. In particular, you notice four times, or three times, excuse me, He says, I'm going to make you into nations. Into nations. Not a nation. It's very important but into nations. Verse 4, multitude of nations. Verse 5, the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you into nations. So what God is saying here doesn't refer in the physical sense. This is not a reference to Israel. This is not a reference to physical descendants. Israel never became nations. He's speaking of Christians. Right? Christians from where? Many nations. So God says, I'm going to start with a covenant with you, and this covenant is going to be extended to those who share your faith from from all over this world, from all, all, all ethnicities, all nations, which is why Paul says in Romans 4, the promise is according to the grace. Excuse me, the promise is according to grace in order to be guaranteed to all Abraham's descendants. Well, who are his descendants? Well, he says, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you into the father of many nations. So you see, the children of Abraham are Jews and Gentiles who share, what? Abraham's faith. And they are from where? All nations. They're from everywhere. This is why Paul would write in Galatians 3, if you are Christ, are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What does that mean? Well, the promises given to Abraham are now given to you. You're the heir. So thousands of years ago, 4,000 years ago, God comes to this man named Abram. And he gives them these promises that would be fulfilled in Jesus and now have an effect on your life in this little town called Hamilton, Virginia, in the year 2019. You, if you trust in Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and you are heirs of these covenantal promises. And by the way, I think there's a far greater promise than I'm going to make a nation from you. Certainly he did that, the nation of Israel. God's saying, I'm going to create the church through you. I'm going to change the world from you. This is not about an ethnic lineage. This is about all people of God. And so, of course, God, Israel in the Old Covenant has a very special relationship with God, there is no doubt. But Israel in the Old Covenant is just a shadow pointing to the church in the New Covenant. The fulfillment is a type of the church that is now fulfilled from all nations. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means we want nations to come to know Jesus, Right? Isn't that what, what we want? This is what we're after. I was so blessed by Pastor Glenn's memorial last night. And now people would testify if you know Pastor Glenn at all. You know, this is the man who wants his neighbors and the nations to come, to know Christ, to come into this covenant. The, the, the world is 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 ignorant of Jesus. This is why we must give and go and pray. I prayed earlier today for the Bedini Kurds. A little, a, a little people group, about three million people living in northern Iraq. Maybe a few hundred of them have received Christ as their Savior. Man, the Bedini need to be brought in. And that God might use us as a church. Isn't this extraordinary? He might use our lives to bring about the salvation of people who live next door or are even around the world. I'm so thankful for your giving. I'm so thankful that when we closed out the fiscal year of 2018, we had received, now six years in a row, an excess. We had received an excess of $124,000 that we didn't need, amen? And we didn't save a penny of it. I and mean, what do you do with that extra money? Like pastors get new cars, right? I, I, I tried that. That got voted down, okay? I don't know what, no, no one is, only two people were excited about that, right? Uh, no, 124000 All of it is sent to local, national, international missions, and church funding. Every single penny of it. Why? Because God wants the nations. And we don't need to save for a rainy day. God's going to take care of our needs, right? Isn't he? And so let's use the resources we have to impact, to increase the multitude of this of this offspring that goes all the way back to Abraham. There's a lineage we have to pick up speed, don't we? There's a land. right, number two, you see this in verse eight, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Once again, he's promised the land of Canaan, and once again, we're reminded of the land that will be given to us in Jesus. Canaan is just a pointer to the fulfilled promise that will come in Christ, and so Christian, what land will you get in Christ? What's the land? Romans 4.13, The promise to Abraham and his descendants is they shall inherit the world, right? The whole thing, okay? I'm claiming a mountain in Montana, okay? That will be mine. I don't know what you're getting, but the world is ours. Christ comes redeeming the world, a lineage, land, and then best of all, of course, is the Lord. Verse 7, he says, he also says in verse 8, but I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I'll be God to you. (laughs) That's the heart of everything God's doing. God says, I'm not just going to give you a son. I'm just not going to give you land. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to devote myself to you. I'm going to be your God. If you were to, you were to meet Abraham on the street and you say, Abraham, tell me, about, tell me about God. You know what Abraham would say? He would say, he's my God. He's mine. Right? Not there is a God, but he's my God. Is that true of you? Is he your God? Not not is do you believe there's a God or 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 maybe just believe that there is one God, right? No, is he can you say God, the one true God, is is mine. He's my God. This is what God says, I'll be your God. Jeremiah picks up on this. This is chapter 32. If you want some wonderful reading this afternoon, God says, Listen, they shall be my people, I will be their God. That's the same theme. What does that mean? Listen. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will, God says this, I will rejoice in doing good to them with all my heart and with all my soul. Now just think for a moment what that means. That the God who made the planets and the stars and the molecules and has always existed rejoices in what? His God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, rejoices in doing you good. With all his heart, he says, and with all his mind, he says, and with all his power, he says, all the time to do good for you throughout all eternity, God will. And if you let the vastness of that truth take root in your heart, right, you, you, you will go into the temptations, whatever it might be, greed, hopelessness, despair, and you will watch the enemies of your soul tuck tail and run and get out of there because you will find strength in the fact that God is not just a God. He's just not the God. He is your God. He's yours. And this God rejoices in doing you good. In fact, God comes to him. He says, Abram, you're 99. It's time for a new name. Right? You see that verse 5? He changes his name. He says, No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Uh, you notice God's authority here, by the way. Could you, could you imagine maybe me as, as a pastor taking an infant in my arms, maybe at like a child dedication, and, and saying, listen, your, your parents have, have named you Lenny, right? From now on, you shall be called Melchizedek, okay? Right? You would think, well, no, no, we're going with Lenny or whatever you want, right? Uh, who are you? What are you? What are you talking about? You can't change my baby's name. Right, this is what God just shows up, okay, no, no Abram, get rid of that one, new name, not like if, if it's, okay, it's, would it be okay if I called you Abraham, right, he doesn't ask, he just says, no, we're, we're changing your name, I don't care if you like it or not, in fact, he probably didn't like it, because Abram, the name Abram means father of many, which you kind of imagine must be a running joke, because he's 99 and he has one kid, and most of his life he has none, right? And so you could imagine meeting people, and they're saying, well, what's your name? Well, my name is Father of Many. And they'd be like, oh, wow, how many kids you got? One, right? Zero, right? Right? So he's probably ready for a name change, okay? But, but except for the fact that Abraham means father of a multitude, right? And so as, as one pastor says, he goes from being named Daddy to Big Daddy, okay? And, you know, he's got to think, really, God? Abraham? I mean, you know, I think God's just poking fun at him a little bit. He's like, I'm 99, I have one kid, and, and you're renaming me the father of, of the multitudes. And, and I, I just, I could imagine the announcement when he gathers everybody in his camp and says, okay, I have try, time to change my name. And they all think we, the old man's gotten tired of being called the father of many. And he says, okay, and you need to call me father of the multitudes from, from here on out, right? And uh, off he goes. It reminds me of when Jesus met Simon. Remember Simon in the first conversation he has with him? says, oh, we're, well, Simon's not going to do, we're going to call you Peter, which means rock, rock. Now, if you know anything about Peter, uh, that's kind of like the, the last thing you would probably call Peter because uh, Peter says one thing and does the other thing like two seconds later. Peter's, you know, constantly flying off the handle. I mean, Peter's a lot of things, but stable's not one of them, right? I mean, I don't know what Greek is for wet noodle, but that might have been good for Peter, right? <laughs> So it's like God says, what should I call the guy who waffles back and forth and flies off on the handle? I know. Let's call him Peter. That would be hilarious, right? Let's call him Ra. What I call the 99-year-old guy who has one kid, let's call him a father of a multitude. But of course you understand what God's doing. He will be a father of a multitude, won't he? He will be the father of nations. And it's 4,000 years later, you're proof of that. You're your son and his daughter. he's determining, just like with Peter's life. you see the tremendous growth in Peter. He's determining his destiny, his identity, just as he does with us, right? Because Christian he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't uh, just take you and leave you where you are, does he He takes you as you're immature and you're self-focused and you're full of sin, and he changes us into his likeness, and for some of us, it's a gradual change. For others, it's a radical change right? This, but this is what God is interested in doing. He's interested in changing you. When you become a Christian, doesn't mean you go, well, what does that mean? I buy a suit and come to church on Sunday? No. Well, you do come to church on Sunday. You don't need to wear a suit. But it, what does that mean? I'm nicer, right? I'm more generous? Well, not, not really. It means you become a different person. I mean, if you follow Jesus, he will change you. He'll give you a new name. You're once called rebel. Now you're called servant. You're once called enemy, now you're called friend. You were once called stranger, now you're called son, daughter. You know the new name I want. You call me Christian. I want to be Christian. I want to identify with Christ. And so God lays out these wonderful promises, but you think, well, okay, what must Abraham do? Well, that, that turns us to the covenantal obligations. Is there anything he has to do? Well, yes, there is, isn't there? As you see in verse 9. Covenantal obligations. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Circumcised. This is the first covenantal requirement. In fact, it is the sign... Of the covenant, as you see in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So it's a sign you're in covenant. So I wear a wedding ring, as many of you do. This is a sign I'm in covenant with Allegra. We have exchanged vows, we are husband and wife. And so circumcision is a sign that Abraham's in covenant with God. Right? God often has signs to his covenant. Remember the sign for the Noahic covenant? The covenant with Noah? Remember? It's a rainbow, right? The sign of the Mosaic covenant, according to Exodus 31, is the Sabbath. Okay? You have a rainbow. You have Sabbath. Now, don't you think Abraham wished he got one of those signs? Yeah. Right? Yeah, right? right? <laughs> you know, you, you, there's got to be some conversation. God, can't, can't, can't I get a twinkling star as a sign? or? Another day off, wouldn't that would be a good sign, don't you think? And God says, no, the sign of this covenant is a minor surgery on your private parts. Okay? And, and when God's, I don't know, God had explained this to him, and he must have thought, you, I'm sorry, you want me to do what now? Right? right? He says, oh, I'm sorry, what, what, I must have misunderstood you. What did you say? I mean, imagine, imagine, imagine if God came to you, right? And, and he says, listen, if you want to be in a relationship with me, and uh, you want to go to heaven, well." Um, you, you need to go out back with a flint knife and cut off your foreskin, right? And half of us men would think, you know, heaven's overrated, right? Um, <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure. I want to do that. So why? Is this, I mean, this is strange, isn't it? Why circumcision? Why? Why? why what does what God after? Why not? Why not have you know pierce your ear or something like that? Why not wear a piece of jewelry? Well, it doesn't really come out and explain it. I I will say that, if I could talk to us men for a moment, that this part of the male body, when it is not devoted to the Lord, things go really badly, right? Things don't go well. And we saw this in Genesis 16, didn't we? We saw it in Genesis 12 when he gives his wife away. We see, we'll see, we see it in Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then again in Genesis, later on Genesis 19 with Lot and his daughters in a cave. We'll see it again in Genesis 20 when he gives away his wife again and on and on and on. See, great evil can be done with this part of the body. Adultery, perversion, lust, pornography, abuse, uh, misguided sexual orientations. And at the same time, great good can be done with this part of the body. We could become one flesh with our brides. We could actually create life. You know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What, so what, you say, what's God's will for my life? Your, that you become Christ-like, your sanctification. Well, what does that mean? Well, comma, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body, literally control his own member in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so God says, okay, we're gonna be in covenant. We're gonna start with the men and we're gonna start where the men are most prone to sin. And God is going to, not to be crude, but he's going to brand them. He's gonna put his sign on them that when they look at themselves, they will be reminded, I belong to God. All of me belongs to God. And yet at the same time, this this idea of circumcision, just like the whole Abrahamic covenant, points to a deeper reality, doesn't it? That God is not simply interested in the cutting away of the outward flesh, but cutting away of the inward flesh, this sinful nature in our heart. So we'll read in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that we are to circumcise the foreskin of our hearts. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? So that you will love the Lord your God. So God says, I'm going to do something within you. I'm going to take out the flesh in you. And he calls that the circumcision of the heart. The New Testament picks up on that, changes its name, and calls it being born again or being regenerated. So the circumcision of the heart in the old covenant is synonymous to being born again in the new covenant. Why Paul will write in Colossians 2, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, of Christ. Well, that raises the question then. Well, what about the sign? What about this sign? Is it still binding on the sons of Abraham, like you and I? Well, look at verse 12. It says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Verse 13. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Right? So is this, is, is this going to continue forever? In fact, this became a huge debate in the early church. You can read about it many places in the New Testament. Acts 15 is one of those places. And the church got together, and they decided that circumcision does not belong in the New Covenant. Right? And, and the reason why is, is because it will make missions extremely difficult. Won't it? I mean, that's what they're encountering. Gentiles are coming to faith. And, and do we require those Gentiles? So we read in Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So Paul says it's not that circumcision matters. What matters is that you've been transformed, that your heart's been circumcised, that you're a new creation, that you've been born again. So, so the question then arises, is there therefore any sign of this new covenant if it's not circumcision? Well, there is, of course. It's baptism. So the circumcision is the sign of the old covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Baptism is the sign that we've entered into this covenant, right? It is in baptism that you put on the wedding ring. It's in baptism that you take Christ's name. It's in baptism that henceforth you'll be known as a Christian. This is why we don't baptize babies, right? You say, well, they circumcise infants. They circumcise them at eight days old. Well, that's right. Because the old covenant, as we'll see when we get to Sinai and Exodus, The Old Covenant was very much tied to an ethnic lineage. But the New Covenant now is tied to faith. And we we could talk long about that. I know there's about 100... You know, repenting Presbyterians here. So, uh, but you, you, you read Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I think it's very clear the tie between faith and baptism. Baptism is a sign of the covenant that we are gods, just as circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant that there were gods. You say, well, what if they refused the covenant, the covenantal sign? Right? Because they had a lot of reasons to say no, thank you. What if they said no? Well, look in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, to refuse the sign was to be a covenant breaker, and God says, You are to cut them off. Now, I don't know if you could hear the play on words there, right? Circumcision is simply a compound word, right? Circumference. Right? To, cut a, to be around and incision, to cut around. That's what circumcision means. And so God says, if they will not be cut around, let them be cut off. Right? It's very graphic. He says, there's no, no lineage for you, no land, no Lord. It was a big deal if they refused the son. In fact, you get to Exodus and remember, Moses didn't circumcise his sons. In fact, it was not not until his wife, Zipporah, she went and she does what the father was told to do. She circumcises his sons, takes their foreskin, and throws it at Moses' feet, right? And Moses, by the way, was on his, on his way to meet with the Lord. And the Bible says the Lord was going to kill Moses for his refusal until his wife did this act. Now, I'm glad I'm not preaching that passage. I'm not sure what half of that means. Other than the fact that God takes this really, really seriously. We can't pretend to love God and and defiantly refuse to do what he says. May I say, with love in my heart, that to be an uncircumcised person Jew, an uncircumcised member of this covenant was unthinkable. It is equally unthinkable to be a member of the new covenant and to refuse baptism. To say, I will not be baptized. Now, I know there's many people that we all have different understandings of baptism. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who has received nothing that they consider baptism and say, I'm not going to be baptized. It would be like saying, yes, I'll marry you, but there's no way I'm wearing a wedding ring. Not a chance. What kind of commitment are you making? And I think verse 14 is very helpful because it confronts this modern idea that God is obligated to accept me. That's his job. God just accepts people, right, whether we do what he says or not. No. God's very, very clear here. God wants us to obey him. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to be like him. Is that not how he began this conversation? Look back in verse 1 when God says, I'm God Almighty, I'm El Shaddai. Do what? Walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless. That is, something should distinguish us, right? We should be different from what we once were. We should be different from people who are, who are not like us. Um, who don't have our faith. God's gonna give you opportunities this week to reflect his character. Will you? He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be blameless. He says, I want you to walk before me. I want you to be with me. God speaks, we respond. God commands, we obey. It's like two, two pedals on a bike. You wanna make progress. You need God's commands and obedience. God says, I wanna bless you. I wanna do this for you. But you need to what? Walk with me. We, we need to go together. Sometimes I take my children out into a crowd, and especially the longer, younger kids, they, they stick, when it's a lot of people, they'll stick close to daddy, right? They'll, 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 they'll reach up, they'll wanna grab daddy's hand, right? They'll think, okay, we're gonna have fun, we're gonna have a good time, but we need to stay close. A number of years ago, we went to uh, Dollywood. You ever been in Dollywood? Some interesting people in Dollywood. Um, t- you Tennessee folk, I'm looking at one over there, right? Dolly, Dollywood is, 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 it was crowded right? And, and hot and busy. And, and my kids, you know what they do? They instinctively turn to me and they grab my hand. They instinctively come to me and they lift up their arms and they want daddy to pick them up. Now, what do I think at this? Do I think, oh, really? I mean, am I going to have to hold your hand this whole time, right? Do I really have to carry you? No, I think this is great. This is an opportunity to protect. And this is an opportunity to lead. This is an opportunity to serve. This is an opportunity to fill my kids with junk food. right? This is an opportunity to show them how great God is. right? And, and, and the kids, they don't think we need, they're not thinking we need to know the way. They're not thinking where's the map. They're not thinking what are we going to do. They just think dad's here, mom's here, so we're going to have a great time. We just need dad. He'll keep us safe, he'll guide us, he'll make sure we have a great time. It's the foolish kid who sees something twinkling and off he goes and runs after it and says, oh, we so often live. We say, God, see you over there, I see something shining that I'm not supposed to have and I'm after it, right? My kids are no fools. They hold my hand. They laugh. We eat funnel cake. We have a fantastic time. Listen, God's our dad. He said, I want to bless you, but you have to walk with me. You have to do what I ask. You have to take my hand. Don't run off without me. If you're over there, I can't do anything for you. Come and be with me. And so he comes to Abraham. He says, here's my promises. This is what I'm telling you, but you have to trust me, and you have to obey me, which leads us to the third aspect of the covenant the covenantal miracle. You see there in verse 15, this covenantal miracle, God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, uh, you notice he changes Sarah's name, uh, Sarai, to Sarah. Sarah means princess, and he changes her name because princesses have kings, which is exactly what he says she's going to do in verse 16. In fact, much of these promises are just reiterations, except there's two new elements here. One is that the promised child will not just come from Abraham, but Sarah too. And this must have been their thinking with the whole Hagar thing. That they say, well, God keeps telling you, Abraham, you're going to have a son. He's never said anything about me, Sarah. So maybe I'm the problem. And if you take Hagar, then God could bring about the child of promise. Now, God finally shows up and says, no, no, no. The child of promise is not just coming from Abraham. He's coming from Sarah as well. The old barren woman, in fact, won't just have a son, but a royal dynasty, he says, over many nations and kings will come from you. We saw this as well in verse 6, that that I'm going to bring kings and princes from you. That's a wonderful promise from a couple living in a tent out back, that one day you're going to have kings. Of course, it's pointing forward because her son will have a son, who will have a son, who will have a son, and one day he'll have a son named King Jesus. Well, how does Abraham respond to all this? Well, you notice he falls down and laughs. Verse 17. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Right? Now we know from Romans 4, which is a commentary on Genesis 17, that his laugh is not a disbelieving laugh. It's not a scoffing laugh. It's a laughter of faith, a laughter of joy. He believes and he laughs. Uh, in fact, you notice, you notice he, 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 he bows down right, before the Lord, and laughs. Um, in fact, twice now we've seen that he's bowed down. Verse 1, he bowed down. Verse 17, he bowed down. He's worshiping God. God speaks, he responds, that's worship. The biblical response to God's revelation, he's worshiping, and he does so with his body. Okay? I just want you to note that that, that, that I wonder if we would do well to worship God, not just with our hearts and our minds and our mouths, but with our bodies right? That's what Abraham's doing, right? I mean, that's how you, how you respond to the, to the team that you love, right? Right? Hands up high, fist pump, right? Or for some of us, you know, head in the hands uh, after last night, right? It's a rough, rough morning, right? We respond bodily, right, to the teams we love. Maybe you don't like sports. I don't know. You high five if you get the question right on Jeopardy. I don't know what you do, right? We incorporate ourselves physically, don't we? Well, I just wonder, let me just throw this out there. Shouldn't God get a raised hand every now and then? I know that's uh, we're, we're, we're not those kind of people, are we? Go to Ghana. You all need to go to Ghana. We'll see about raised hands. But uh, maybe not a raised hand, maybe a smile. Maybe God could get a smile every once in a while. Uh, eyes closed, bowing, looking to heaven. You know, these are all ways the Bible invites us to respond to God. That, 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 that God, God, Abraham comes and Abraham bows before the Lord. I've mentioned to you, and you know this, if you're a parent that you're, especially you dads coming home from work, your homecoming is, is like an event, isn't it? It's a celebration. Especially with the little ones. They get so excited when dad's coming home. I have older kids now and sometimes my older kids, they act like theologians. Um, they, they, they sit on the couch and give a nod of assent to my presence. right? So, so they, they'll nod, I recognize your presence, Father. I mentally agree that you are now here, but but I'm not going to put the phone down, right, or get off the couch. And so what do I do? Listen, I, I want to walk up to them slap the phone out of their hands. Or I want to stand in front of the television. Anybody relate to this? I don't know. And I want to say, listen, I'm your dad. I created you, right? I provide for you. And I want to be embraced. I want you to stand up, walk over, wrap your arms around me. I want you to love me, not just with your mind, but with your body as well. And I'm just asking, does God know that Hamilton Baptist Church is excited, is awed, is repentant, is is something when we gather to worship Him? Don't you want to show your Father you are excited that you're with Him? In fact, Abraham he bows. He's not put, as one put it, he's not putting on a show, but his delight in God shows. That's what holds so many people back. I don't want to put on a show. Abraham's not putting on a show. He just loves God, and it shows. In fact, they have a conversation there in verse eighteen, and Abraham said to God, "Oh, that Ishmael might live before you." God said, "No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant." For his offspring after him, so so the, the son of promise is now named Isaac. As so we've already established, his Hebrew for laughter it was a perpetual reminder of the joy of being in covenant with God. You say, "What about Ishmael? You know, this is what Abraham. Why don't you choose Ishmael?" God says, "No, I'm not going to choose Ishmael, but I have promises for him," as you see in verse twenty. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be a father of 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And so the the promises to Ishmael are very similar to what God told Adam, very similar to what God told Abraham. I'm going to make him fruitful and multiply him. But the covenant is going to belong through the lineage of Isaac. So the question is, why not Ishmael? Why not Ishmael? Well, we don't find out, really, until we get to the New Testament. Because Isaac is representative of the divine miracle of salvation. He points to that. Ishmael represents seeking after God's blessings by your works, by your self-effort. So bringing about God's salvation through our own schemes. Isaac represents salvation by divine power and grace. And therefore, we get no credit. So we saw there in in, in verse 17, you know, Abraham says, listen, we're too old to have a son. We're too old. Which is, of course, the exact right time for God to act. Because it's only when human resources are exhausted, when everything seems impossible, right? When it's out of our hands that God works. And so Paul picks up on this in Galatians 4, which was our New Testament reading this morning. He's explaining that we can't be made right before God through human effort. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about Isaac and Ishmael. And he says in verse 42 of Galatians 4, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Two covenants. You have two women, two sons, two different ways to seek the same blessings from God. Two different ways to seek God's salvation. Salvation through human work or salvation by divine power. And so God says, no, we can't do Ishmael. Because Ishmael represents the false religions of this world. That says, I'm going to be good and do work so God will accept me. It has to be done by Isaac, who only comes through my miraculous power. The covenant comes through Isaac and his miraculous birth. Not the scheming birth of Ishmael, because salvation is a divine, miraculous work. So, what does Abraham do with all this? Well, you notice, lastly, that the covenant is embraced. It's embraced, verse uh, 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham... Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those who were born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. I just want you to note, I think it is now twice we read in those verses, the phrase, that very day. That very day. Because you think he might have said, okay, I need to get circumcised, I'm going to put that on my to-do list okay right get circumcised right and i'm going to get to, god i'm going to get to that soon instead god said it and abraham says i'm going to do it we're doing it today sarah where's the knife right i need to get circumcised i'm going to do it jesus says if you love me you what you obey me so uh, the people of faith should have a sense of urgency in obedience that if God's calling you to do something or God's calling you to stop doing something, you need to obey when? Now. As we say to our children, to delay is to disobey, right? God's not interested in good intentions. He's interested in your obedience. And by the way, his obedience was painful, right? This is not easy, And it's not only him, it's his 13-year-old son. As you look in verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. I have trouble, I have a 13-year-old son, I have trouble getting him to clean his room. right? And Abraham's cutting off his foreskin. right? In fact, it's this passage that Arabs, who are the descendants of Ishmael, will circumcise their sons when they turn 13. And it's also in Genesis 17, the reason that Jews circumcise their sons when they're eight days old, as God instructs. In fact, it's not just his son, it's all his servants. Is this not extraordinary? Verse 26, that very day, we see that phrase again, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in his house, those bought with his money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. All of them, all his workers. I mean, could you imagine you go to work tomorrow and your boss, you know, you're at your desk and your boss walks up and he's holding a knife, right? And he says, you know, God spoke to me yesterday. Will you join me in the break room for a moment, right? (laughs) I think I'll get my resume out. You know, I think I'm okay, right? They all get circumcised. I mean, I think that's extraordinary. They must have trusted Abraham, his leadership, the diversity of men, ages, maturity, all gathered into one covenant on that very day. So my friends, what is God asking you to do? And you keep saying tomorrow. Next week. Next year. Right? Some, some of you, you know the relationship God offers. And you say, I'll receive him next time. I'll I'll follow him next time. Why why won't you embrace him? Why won't you surrender in faith and repentance? Why won't you bow to him and follow him in obedience? That very day, my Christian brothers and sisters, what does God want you to do that you're putting him on? May there be urgency in our obedience because of our love for him. Abraham obeyed on that very day. His obedience was painful. It was shameful, and it was bloody. And he did it in order to be in covenant with God. He would have a son, wouldn't he? And his son would endure pain and shame and spill his blood in order to bring us into a covenant relationship with God. You see, the Lord Jesus was cut off from God. He was cut off from the land of the living. Why? Because of our disobedience. Because we have not done what we're supposed to do. That we who have been been cut off by God might be brought in. For scripture says, for you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And yet God made you alive together with him by counseling the record of debt. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The debt's been paid. He has has paid it all. He has done all the covenantal obedience for us. And that if we would just embrace him by faith, we can enter into that covenant relationship with God today. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. May you be saved today. And for all of us who are saved, may we walk with him today. May we take his hand and go from this place and be blameless that we might obey him on this very day. Our Father, we are thankful for your great word and the encouragement and challenge that it is to us. We ask, dear Lord, that you would equip us, that you would work in our hearts in light of what Christ has done, that we would be the people you long for us to be that you would do that work this very day. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.